Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the Royal Academy's Architecture Programme Curator. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this event, which forms part of the Royal Academy's season on the future of housing. It's the fourth in the series of discussion events uh, which have been conceived to tackle some of the big overarching issues that mark the present housing crisis in Britain. The question of ownership is surely one of the biggest, and as we'll hear, one of the most urgent with the widest repercussions. Uh, this evening's discussion is chaired by Aditya Chakraborty, who is the senior economics commentator at The Guardian and has in fact just been nominated for an Orwell Prize for his writing on London's housing crisis over the past year. Uh, Aditya is going to give a fuller introduction to this evening's event and of course is going to introduce our panel of speakers. Uh, so please join me now in welcoming Aditya. Hello, everybody. Um, can you hear me? If you can't hear me in the back, just wave. No waving hands, so it's success. Um, I'm Adit Chakrawati. I'm from The Guardian. I'm delighted to welcome you all here for this evening's event. Um, I had been planning something quite cute and chair-like to say about this evening's event, but um, actually, while we speak, there are two occupations related to housing going on in London this evening. Uh, one's up in North London, uh, about 45 minutes from here, uh, in Barnet, where a house is occupied by protesters who are protesting the redevelopment of an estate that was leased by the local council. The other's over in Newham, again about 45 minutes from here, where uh, a woman who had been evicted from her flat last month uh, retook it over the weekend with the aid of Focusy 15, a group of housing activists, uh, just this evening, police have stormed the flat and arrested one of the activists inside. Um, and I think what that tells you is that the housing crisis, as we read about it or discuss it, isn't just something abstract that exists for political debate or for discussion by people in the media. Um, it's actually something that is beginning to intrude into our politics in a very real way. Um, I've been writing about this issue for... A while now, and it strikes me that actually the notion of people buying and speculating on houses, that's not new. That's been going on at least as long as we've had dinner parties. Um, the idea of foreigners buying London property is not new either. If you look at the novels of V.S. Naipaul, he talks about 1970s London and how Edgware Road was suddenly full of Arabs. But what is new, I think, is that in London in particular, housing, especially in central London, has become a kind of global financial asset uh, in which the homes that we own or rent are becoming financial instruments uh, in a way that's very different from the way it was before. What's really interesting about that occupation in Barnet is it's an estate that's been bought by a private equity company run by a guy who lives in, um, lives in Guernsey, tax exile, <coughs> The, the fund is managed out of Cayman Islands, and when it was bought, uh, the private equity fund described it as a pure play on the UK residential market for global investors. Um, it's against that backdrop that we're talking tonight. Uh, we've got an excellent panel of guests, um, all of whom come from different perspectives, an artist, an activist, a policy wonk, 
the journalist and a senior lecturer from uh, University and Architecture Expert. Uh, I'll introduce them one by one, but let's start with Tom Hunter, uh, who's a renowned photographer. Uh, and you may know him best for his documentation of uh, the area in which he's lived, East London, and how it's changed over the last 30 years. Tom, over to you. Um, yeah, uh, hello. Uh, what do I talk about for five minutes? Um, housing crisis. Is there a housing crisis? Um, some people don't seem to think there is, is there? Seems to be a lot of people who seem to be doing very well out of this so-called crisis. Seems to be making a huge amount of money from it. And um, I think it was, is it David Cameron who was on the news yesterday talking about inheritance tax? So um, giving that it'll be a million pound houses can be handed down to your children, which I thought was quite an interesting thing to say. And he put it in terms of this is, uh, this is something that should be an inherent right. I'm sort of mixing up all the words so I never remember anything properly. But he's basically saying it's an inherent right that we should be able to give our children uh, the wealth that we've created or that they've inherited, I suppose. Which I thought was a really interesting notion. That's an inherent right to inherit wealth and housing. Um, God. Oh, what's wrong with me tonight? Sorry. Um, um, <clears throat> when, I was, when I first came to, uh, to London, I ended up living in Scots. I've done this before. God, to pieces. This is really funny, isn't it? Tom, I'll ask uh, you a sorry. question, if, if I can. Uh, um, but I thought it was an inherent right that people have places to live. That's what I think is an inherent right, not to pass on that wealth. Let me, let me ask you a question. When you moved into East London 30-odd years ago? Yeah. I remember you saying once that you advised when moving into Hackney to buy as soon as you could because it was going to be a really up-and-coming area. Tell us what your reaction to that was. Um, yeah, I thought it was a complete joke, really. Um, you I thought mean, buying into Hackney as an up-and-coming area was a complete joke? Yeah. I mean, why would you want to buy? It seemed At the time, we were living in squats. There were endless streets of empty properties. There were housing estates that you could move into. It would be quite easy to go down to council offices, join the housing association... It, was, it wasn't that bad a deal. Um, so it seemed to be, why would I want to invest in this area? And obviously that's changed completely. And now it, that's obviously, you know, being offered places on for, you know, £4,000 on, on Broadway Market seemed ridiculous. Why would you want to spend that much money when you could just live in a squat? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I am incredibly intelligent and I didn't fall for that scam. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll never do such a stupid thing, and I don't regret that at all. <laughs> and I don't regret that. I don't, really don't want to be you know, a speculator in housing. I do think housing is a right for everyone. And I do think we have completely fucked it up on this notion that we should inherit to housing. And it's the whole thing of, well, if you've got wealth, you keep wealth. And we seem to be inspiring to the arts. And the, the art that we're inspiring to is Downton Abbey. We seem to be inspiring back to a time when there's a few people had all the wealth, all the privileges, all the money... And all the saps like you and me live on the estates where I come from in Dorset, lived on the estate. You live in a tenant association. You work on the, or work on the estate. You dock your calf to the boss, and that's what they want. And that's, yeah, that's what it seems to be. That's, Cameron's statement is all about that. Put the poor people, lose all their capital, and keep the capital to the very rich people. Have you seen that process going on around you? 
Yeah, it's happening all the time, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking about that just before we came, and it, it is changing now. Um, What's it look like in Hackney, then? Tell us. I mean, there, are, there are good things. I'm not saying that Hackney now is a horrible place. When I first came to Hackney, um, it did have huge social problems. Um, and there are lots of things which have improved vastly. The schools have improved vastly. Um, and I think that was a lot to do with new labour. And Tony Bear, Blair living in Hackney, seeing the schools and invested in that. Now there isn't a white flight or middle-class flight from places like that, which is great. So the school's there, my kids go to school in Hackney, and they are enjoying it. That's great, and there's more people who don't want to just evacuate there. That's great. But the trouble is now, where are my kids going to go? They're enjoying it now, they're loving it now. All, the, all my friends' kids have all got, have all got kids. Where are they going to go? And they can't afford to live there. So we'd end up living in a shithole like Paris or Manhattan. I mean, who the fuck wants to live in this boring, shitty cities <laughs> where everyone is just filled with tourists Really expensive houses, expensive coffee bars, and all the all the people, the scum people, like teachers, lecturers, people who work in the media, all have to move out to the suburbs. I mean, that's my idea of hell. Living in somewhere you're just surrounded by merchant bankers, all these people who just make loads of money by speculating. I mean, what a bunch of shit that would be. And I think Paris has become a really fucking horrible museum. We go in here, oh, it's beautiful for a Valentine's date. And then you have to go back out to the suburbs and everyone's stuck in these, these places. Paralysed cities, polarised cities, rather than gentrified cities. So you've described there a, a city that's turning to a museum, Paris, and yeah. you're saying that's where we're going. Um, let's turn now to an activist. Uh, Lindsay Garrett is an NHS court care coordinator. Uh, but last year she made her name as a housing activist. Uh, she lives on a new era estate. Um, Lindsay, you, you take up the story. You can tell it better than I can. OK. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm from the Neuer Estate, which is an estate in Oxton. Uh, the estate comprises of 93 flats. Um, it was built in the 1930s and was originally owned by a charitable trust. Um, the idea of the estate was it was set up for people on low incomes. Um, well, there was a mixture of residents that lived there. I'll give you an example. We've got families, single parents, the elderly, disabled people... <coughs> Two of our longest residents have lived there since the 1930s. Um, myself and many others have had the privilege of being born and growing up on the estate. Um, I think what makes New Era really special is the community that's been able to grow over many years. Uh, with street doors being left open, being able to pop into our neighbours, attending each other's parties and birthday celebrations... Um, the New Era Estate has always been affordable. Uh, it's always been an affordable housing estate. Me, personally, I've lived there for over 20 years. My parents live on the estate, so does my auntie, and so did my sister at one stage. Um, I've watched Hoxton change considerably over the years. I mean, it's gone from somewhere where you probably wouldn't have gone after dark to a trendy, vibrant place full of coffee shops and art galleries. Um, Hoxton had become the latest victim of gentrification. Um, with, the t with, with, it, with, uh, with that came the sale of our estate, came the sale of the New Area Estate. It went up for sale. Um, it, in July of last year, we were told the estate had been sold. Dukes, really, because we were sort of led to believe that it would be sold on to a like-minded a like-minded company, somebody that would keep the estate on for people on low incomes. Anyway, the estate was sold off, and it was sold off to a consortium of property developers that consisted of the Benyons Estate and Westbrook. Benyon Estate um, is run by a gentleman called Edward 
Benyon, who's the brother of Richard Benyon, who's one of the richest Tory MPs in the country, and Westbrook, who are a really large American um, uh, property development company. Not long after the takeover of the estate, in fact, within two weeks, we were given new tenants, tenants, tenant, tenancy agreements, and we were told that our rent was gone up by 17%. Um, the leases were given for one year, and we were told that we were then told about the future development of the estate, which would mean that once our one-year leases were up, the rents were going to triple. They were going to go from £200 a week to £600 a week, which effectively left 93 and myself families homeless. I think what struck me about it was the ease of which this could happen. There was no legislation in place, there was no protection for residents, no one seemed to give a shit, no one cared. It was like, right, okay, you know, you can just evict 93 families. Um, of course I was outraged, I was upset, and a bit disbelieving, you know, all the emotions that somebody who was being told that I wasn't rich enough to live in my home would have. Um, so then began the beginning of the new era of campaign. Um, uh, my first port of call was just to ring the national press, you know, the large newspapers, and the Daily Mirror were really interested. They'd run a few stories on Richard Benyon, and uh, it, it, they came down to interview me, and suddenly, a week later, we was on the front page. It dawned on me really quickly that, you know, this was interesting to people, and people wanted to know about it, and people were outraged by it. Um, and it also became obvious how many other people were affected by it. Um, so from that we organised a meeting, we set up a tenants, a tenants association with me as the chairperson. Initially we just relentlessly campaigned in our local area, uh, it just really consisted of me and a group of residents sort of shouting a lot down Oxford Market and letting people know what was going on. Um, I think ultimately we were really determined that we weren't going to be moved from our homes and it was from that people did start to listen. Um, I, I think ultimately what we wanted people to realise that these were our homes, this was our community, this was, these were my friends, these were my families. It was more than just money, it was more than just bricks and mortar, it meant more to us than that and it was getting that message across. Um, with the support of Russell Brand and other organisations like Diggs and Change.org, we set up a petition and um, we decided to do a march onto Benyon Estates. Uh, the march was organised and we had about 300 people turn up and the idea was to evict the Benyons from our homes, what, exactly what they were doing to us. Uh, the publicity was grew from that. It was incredible, actually. What started off as something quite small just went nuts and suddenly we had people from all over the country you know all the media were interested and um we were getting the the right back in the right support i mean can i just add as well initially we did go down the right routes of contacting our local mps and co contacting hackney council needless <laughs> 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 to say wasn't very bloody interested um okay so uh um What's, what, what happened very quickly after the march is that the Benyons backed out, which was obviously a victory for us and brilliant. And after all the bullyings and threats that they'd made to us, and believe me, they did bully us and they did threaten us, they backed out very quickly, which left us in a position that we were dealing with this really large American company called Westbrook, um, who immediately stamped their authority down on us as if to say, you're still, you're still going to be evicted, don't think you can do to us what you did to the Benyons which just made us even more determined. I mean, and from that, our petition grew. We had over 300,000 signatures on our petition, and uh, we marched a Downing Street with over 1,000 people in attendance. Um, 
just before Xmas. Uh, sorry, I wrote Xmas. I meant Christmas. Just before Christmas. Just before Christmas, we were given the news that the estate had been sold to a social housing provider, which was, of course, um, we were delighted. It was a victory. Um, I'm often asked why, which is why I'm here today, um, as to what we did and why we were so successful and what we did differently. I'm, I think for, for me, some of the key, firstly, of course, it involves a lot of hard work. I mean, you know, the, me and others on the campaign worked tirelessly and didn't get much sleep over the seven-month period that we were fighting this campaign. But on top of that, I think organisation was really key, and I often think that we had intended targets and we created maximum embarrassment for those involved. And I think if you can pinpoint and pick out those um, those that are going to hate to be publicly embarrassed, it, it has a lot more impact than just generally saying we want the government to do something about it. It's about picking people out as individuals and saying, you know, you've got a part in this as well, so we'll take you all down individually and then eventually we'll deal with the bigger problem. Um, also, I think as well that um, we were really lucky to have a really strong community and a really spirited community. Um, um, we all know each other as neighbours, so I'd always advise people to get to know their neighbours because you never quite know when you might need them. And uh, communication was key to it, as in, you know, we organised regular meetings, we sent out newsletters regularly, we made sure the residents felt involved. There wasn't just me and these two other girls running off and doing interviews and speaking on behalf of people. We made sure that they felt they were part of it also. And um, that worked really well for us. And of course, the celebrity helps and a few catchy tunes and it's as easy as that, really. <laughs> no, um, I really did hope this would set a precedent um, for other people and give people the courage to fight uh, you know, to fight back. I mean, we know there's a lot of other campaigns going on across London at the moment. I mean, that that's a good thing that people are standing up and uh, you know coming together and fighting back. But I think it's also a worrying insight into the future of London and demonstrates the desperate need for direct action now. So, thank you. Um, Lindsay, just before I let you go. Um, you had a celebrity, uh, a rapacious Tory MP, an American fund management firm, and a housing estate not far from central London. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there was a load of work, hard work that you put in, but how much do you think a campaign like yours could be followed by, I don't know, an estate out in Waltham Forest, for instance, further out, less likely to attract attention? How much of it is just down to... The, the old estate agent's adage, location, 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 plus Russell Brand. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's possible. I don't see why anything's not possible if you shout loudly enough and the passion, the de determination's there. I mean, it's no different what part of London you live in. It's still their homes. They, they still have the right to live there as much as we do in Hoxton. So I don't think it should make any difference. I think it's just about... I think the key to it is probably... Organize, organizing it correctly and also I think targets is really key to it I sometimes feel that you know if we keep you can really embarrass some of these people and some even some of these developers you know that are building on in the Hendon estate I can't mm. think who, uh, West Hendon yeah yeah in West Hendon I can't Barrett's. think who Barrett's you know yeah. why not embar embarrass Barrett's give you know they, they, they're they responsible they're yeah. the one they're just as responsible for evicting people from this home from their homes and I think the, probably the key to it is creating maximum embarrassment from these people so yeah I think it's possible no matter where you live Okay. Um, 
let's turn now to Justin McGurk. Uh, Justin uh, is a journalist um, and a former colleague of mine from The Guardian, I believe, uh, former design critic. He's also um, author of Radical Cities, which looks at how other countries have taken on to their, their housing crisis. Uh, but just to begin with, Justin, um, tell us, broaden out the discussion a bit. We've heard two kind of eyewitness activist accounts about what's happening in London. Just broaden that out. How much that is London only? How much has it got to do with the rest of the country? Well, it obviously affects the rest of the country. I mean, you know, if we think about the root causes of this, we could point out that last year saw the smallest amount of social housing construction since the Second World War, 10,000 homes across the whole country. So we're a very, very long way from the days when Harold Macmillan was building 300,000 homes every year. That's, that's one root cause. Um, I, think, I think something special is happening in London, though. I think it's obviously more extreme in London. Mm. And Lindsay was talking about you know, embarrassing developers. And I think if you look at something like the Haygate Estate in Elephant and Castle, I think the developers, Lendlease and also the council, Southwark, should be publicly embarrassed for what went on there, where uh, a housing estate for 1,200 people was demolished, um, those people were evicted, and they're going to build twice as many homes on the site, but only 79 of them will be socially rented. So out of 2,300 homes, only 79 will be socially rented. And, and you know, the developers always argue that um, it's not, you know, we can't make it viable for us with our 20% profit margins to keep more than that. And of course, it's, it's an embarrassment, and Southwark was played for a fool. And, in fact, Southwark's going to lose money on the deal so to secure Lend-Lease's profit, which is the dictionary definition of neoliberalism. And that's basically what we're dealing with. I mean, I think there's, there's a huge amount to say. Um, we're talking about ownership. I wish renting wasn't stigmatised, you know, in, in the way that it's not stigmatised in, say, Germany. Um, I think there's a huge amount of money in the system that could be brought to bear on building homes but it's currently being spent on um, housing benefit that gets transferred directly to private landlords. So it's basically government money being transferred to, to the middle class in many cases. Um, that's not a simple thing to solve, but I'm just saying there's a lot of housing money around. Um, ownership is obviously the key to our future security now. It's not just about owning a home. It's a, the home becomes the pension part. It mm. becomes you know, your savings. It's, it's, it's everything. All our security is tied up in ownership. But I think, since we're talking about ownership, it, it's amazing how narrow that conversation actually is because there are other forms of ownership. And it's worth reminding ourselves that large chunks of Manhattan were, build, were built uh, in, in the 50s and 60s as cooperative housing where people had a stake. If you think about something like Co-op City in the Bronx, that's 15,000. That's basically an estate, but not a rental estate, an owned estate. 15,000 households owning shares in a limited equity cooperative where apartments can be resold, but they can only be resold at a certain, at a controlled price. You could, you could, they can't be sold at market value. So New York, funnily enough, for an equally kind of money-obsessed, you know, property-obsessed city, is much better at things like rent control and, and, and value control than London is. Um, New York's becoming tricky to talk about in that sense because a lot of those co-ops are now being privatised, inevitably. But it, it, I was interested to learn more about Zurich, which is, again, a very rich city full of bankers, um, just as rich as London in many ways. 
where co-ops, cooperative housing, accounts for nearly a quarter of all housing in Zurich. You know, and a third of that housing stock has been built since 2000. So it's not like in New York, a legacy of a bygone era. This is very much current. A lot of housing is being built in Zurich as cooperatives. And it's very, very interesting how they do it. I mean, if you look at something like the Kalkbreiter, which is uh, a home with about 100 flats for about 250 people, uh, which was built last year, it's a cooperative. Uh, but if you look at what that building offers, it's really quite extraordinary. Because it offers, in terms of flats, it offers everything from micro-units without kitchens, where residents share a kind of collective kitchen a la Narkomfin, Soviet-style, you know, 1920s cooperative model, all the way up to apartments with 17 bedrooms for ex extremely extended families. So that is a kind of diversity of housing in one building that you cannot find almost across, you know, the whole of London. I mean, that's an extraordinary diversity in one building. And... You know, cooperatives are not going to solve the kind of housing estate crisis. I definitely believe there needs to be a major shift in political will to start building and preserving um, council housing and social housing. Affordable housing is, is just a misnomer. There's no point even talking about affordable housing because it's 80% of market value. It's not affordable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, this is cooperative housing that can, that can provide homes for Families with multiple kids. You know, in London, if you've got three kids, you need to be a millionaire, more or less, or you're going to eat up huge amounts of housing benefit, etc. Um, so, well, the other thing about Kalkbreiter is that, you know, the, the municipality paid for an architecture competition to build the structure. So, I mean, they, there are ways of doing this, and, and I often feel that the conversation in London is very limited, actually, in terms of the, the options made available to us. Um, it's a huge amount to say, but I'll just keep it short for now. Okay. Thank you, Justin. Um, just one thing. To what extent is there a housing crisis in London, which is driven by the fact that London is basically where it's at in the UK economy, and then the rest of the country basically is just affected less and less by what happens in London? So you can go to Liverpool and they've got a housing crisis, but the housing crisis is actually that they've got loads of empty houses. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean first of all, I'm not, I'm not an economist. I can't answer that seriously, but, I mean, it's clear that there are different kinds of housing crises. Yeah, I mean, it's not so long since you could buy a terraced house in Liverpool for one pound. Mm. That's a different kind of crisis. Mm. Um, you know, I've written a lot about Latin America, and people talk about slums and favelas and barriers and so on. That's also not technically a housing crisis. You know, those people are capable of building themselves homes. They've got other... It's a kind of infrastructural crisis. They've got other kinds of crises. Mm. But, you know, in, in London, building our own homes is not such an easy option um, but yeah I mean that there are, I think you, you raise an excellent point which you're frankly much more qualified to answer <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a cop out described as flattery um, okay um, let's turn now to uh, an actual economist uh, Chris Walker was uh, a civil servant on the uh, government's econo uh, economy service uh, but he's now Head of Housing, Planning and Urban Policy at Policy Exchange, which just in my term, a neoliberal think tank. <laughs> so, um, Chris, over to you. What's your, what's your solution? Thank, thank, thank you very much. Well, first thing I'd like to say is that uh, we should make absolutely no mistake uh, that we uh, do have a housing crisis. And by housing crisis, I mean we have a fundamental shortage of housing. And that shortage 
is most acute in London and in the southeast. And one of the symptoms of that is not just uh, an increasingly divided society of the type that Tom alludes to, where you have uh, riches, rich versus poor, wealthier get, getting wealthier, the wealthy getting wealthier, um, and vice versa. It's increasingly a chasm between young and old people. And to debate today's discussion is a discussion about home ownership. And of course, it's actually the youngest people in our society who are being squeezed out of home ownership the most. Home ownership is now 63%. That's nearly the lowest in, sorry, that's the lowest in nearly 30 years. Uh, it's lower even than when Mrs. Thatcher uh, left office in 1990. It peaked at 71% in the early 2000s, and it's fallen steadily ever since. And the reason home ownership is declining is because affordability is getting worse and worse and worse. So I'm going to reel out, in true economist style, I'm going to reel out a few facts. Um, let's take affordability. Now, 1997, uh, London housing market. The average house price, so this is the medium average, um, was £86,000. So this is, this is across the whole of London. Now, of course, £86,000 today will barely buy you the garden shed. But what is really important about that figure is that the £86,000 was only about four times then earnings for London, earnings for London. So you had a house price to earnings ratio of just four. Today, that figure is 12. Mm. Earnings, uh, sorry, house prices in London are now 12 times average London earnings. So it's a tripling of house prices relative to earnings. And of course, in London and the southeast, that's where we've seen the demand growing the strongest. Some of you will have seen uh, coverage recently that uh, London's population recently reached 8.6 million, which is the peak that it reached in 1939. So we're now back up to where we were then. And in a few years' time, it's going to be 10 million. So the population is growing. It's growing quickly. The number of households is growing. They're growing quickly. And so unless we build more houses to cater for that, uh, affordability is going to get even worse. So I could be sitting here in 10 years' time, if I'm lucky enough to be invited back, not talking about an earning, a price-to-earnings ratio of 12, but 24 or even worse. So the fundamental problem is that affordability is getting worse, and that is fundamentally because supply is not keeping pace with demand. We are not building enough homes in this country. We need, uh, according to the official ONS figures, we need to be building about 220,000 houses a year in the country. That's to keep up with demand. So that's just to keep prices relative to earnings as they are now, just, just to stop it from getting worse. And, of course, we need to be building a lot more than that um, if we're to actually improve the situation and improve affordability. Last year, we built barely half that. We built just over 100,000 houses, 
half the houses that we need just to keep prices standing still. And it's the same in London. In London, we need to build about 40,000 houses a year to keep affordability stable. We built 20,000, half what we need to be building. So we need to build more to improve affordability. The, the other thing I'd just uh, like to say is that I do find the debate about tenure somewhat of a red herring because whether you house 220,000 people in the owner-occupation sector or you house them in the rented sector, you still need 220,000 houses. So um, I think for me, uh, certainly, and uh, certainly I, I think a lot of my economist friends would agree with this, that the tenure debate is almost secondary to that of overall supply when it, becomes, when it comes to affordability. Yes, you can uh, subsidise home ownership uh, and you can use demand-side measures to make <coughs> home buying cheaper, but without extra supply it will come at the expense of the rented sector and of other tenures. And, of course, if you do demand-side measures across the piece for all the tenures without doing anything on the supply side, again, all you're going to do is inflate house prices and stoke the market. That is absolutely not uh, the way that we want to go. And the other thing I'll just say, um, which will be a surprise, I think, to many people here to hear me say, is that more home ownership is not always better. Home ownership is not for everyone at every point in their lives. Some households, including young professionals in their early in their careers, need to be able to move. Um, you know, it just makes sense. And the rented sector um, helps support labour mobility, which is actually really, really important uh, for the competitiveness of our uh, economy. Now, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet to solving this, this housing crisis. Um, however, it's not true that the private sector has never built enough homes to meet our housing need. Before the Second World War and before the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, it built ample. However, since the Second World War, the only way we've ever been able to build enough houses is through large-scale council house building. Now, you'll not be surprised to hear me say, again, coming from a, a free market think tank, that I don't think we should go back to building uh, council houses en masse. Um, but I do think we need to fundamentally look at planning, look at the supply side and how we can build more houses. Because fundamentally, the reason we've got so many people on the social housing waiting list is because affordability in the wider private market is so bad, and more and more people are having to fall back to social housing. It's having to take more and more of the burden. So this is a market-wide problem. You can't just look at the social housing sector in isolation. So just uh, very quickly, a few solutions uh, that, uh, that I have been advocating uh, at Policy State Exchange. Um, some of you will be aware that last year we hosted the Wolfson Economics Prize, which was a prize about how you could build uh, a new garden city. So um, certainly I think one of the things we can do, it's not the only solution, but one of the things we can do is encourage more housing development, which is new settlements, both cities and villages. Because at the moment we are ramping up the opposition to housing development. 
because people, you know, you hear about the NIMBYs and they don't want houses in their backyard. They don't want, you know, the, the, the field where they pick their blackberries or walk their dog built, built all over. Um, and, you know, to an extent, they, they have a point. Well, why can't we just diffuse that situation and instead of building uh, next to someone's backyard, let's build an entirely new settlement Instead, it takes away all of those uh, antagonisms. So we think new settlements is definitely the way. And uh, another fact for you, since the Second World War, uh, we built around 30 new towns that today house 3.2 million people. But we have not built a single new town since 1970. Uh, now, for me, that is an absolutely staggering fact one of the ways that we used to be meeting our housing need has, sudden, has, has been completely choked off. Um, and that partly relates to the issue, of course, of the Green Belt. And I think we need to fundamentally have a review of the Green Belt. Um, we need to be more open, for example, to building on the worst parts of the Green Belt. And the Green Belt isn't all green and pleasant land, and don't you have the politicians let you believe it, because a lot of the Green Belt is grey. It's industrial wasteland. Um, most of it is brown, intensive agricultural farmland. And there's more um, uh, land in Surrey that is golf courses than is housing. So... This, for me, I think is an absolutely farcical situation and it is partly symptomatic of the planning system that we have and we do need to have a fundamental overhaul of that. So, in conclusion, uh, there's no escaping the fact that home ownership and affordability will continue to worsen unless we build more homes. Uh, but it doesn't, and, and that is the choice that we face. There's no getting away from it. But it doesn't have to be so politically painful. I think we can detox it by building new homes in a different way uh, and not in people's backyards. I think that would also mean that we could build on... Uh, we need to be, be able to um, uh, build on land without having to pay exorbitant prices for it. Because, of course, what's happening at the moment is that all the developers, they option up all, all the land around existing settlements because they can predict where all the houses are going to be built. And, of course, that means that they, the developers have to pay an exorbitant price of that to the landowner. And that is all money that is being squeezed out of good architectural design because the developers, yes, they have to meet their 20% profit margin. But before we describe that as a, as a dirty word or a dirty sentence, let's think fundamentally why they need that profit margin. They need it because they are taking risk. Um, they are taking risk because um, the housing market could suddenly tank and they could lose all the value in the land that they hold. So that's one of the risks that they face. There's also development risk where all matter of things can go wrong. So I think we need to, you know, we need to be uh, in a situation where we can free up more land, allow land to be acquired more cheaply. That would allow more money to pay for the vital social infrastructure, the, the vital good quality design that we so desperately need. Because, of course, badly designed homes ramps up opposition to new homes even further because people get exactly the, 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 the awful designed homes that they fear. And... Finally, nor does building 300,000 homes or 220,000 homes a year mean concreting over the countryside. 
only 9% of the land in this country is built on. 9%. And that includes back gardens and roads and pathways. It's everything. We could probably solve our housing crisis if we nudged that 9% up to 10%. Is that really too much to ask? Um, Chris, I could ask you so many questions <laughs> following what you've just said, but um, I'm hoping the audience will, will help me out later. Let me just ask you two. Um, you pointed out that home ownership in Britain now is lower than it was uh, when Thatcher left office. Yeah. Now, Thatcher's great gambit, some people here will remember, was that we mm. should become a property-owning yeah, democracy. Exactly. And exactly. part of that was meant to be achieved through right-to-buy and effectively the largest privatisation of the Thatcher area, which was giving out public housing to people to buy at a discount. Was that a wrong policy? Um, <laughs> I think... Um, I, I, I'll tackle that. I, I think it was wrong at one level. I think it was wrong at the level that uh, when we was... I, I think it's right that people should be encouraged to buy their own home and that we should encourage home ownership. I, I, I do agree with that. I think it, where we went wrong is that when we sold all the housing... We didn't, replace, we didn't replace it with new council housing, which, of course, is what the policy today is mm. supposed to be. Mm. So in 2012, they, they, they kind of they did a bit of a reinvigoration of right to buy uh, back in 2012. And the whole idea, and it was kind of part of a little bit of horse trading between the Liberal Democrats mm. and the Conservatives in the coalition, that in return for doing more right to buy and offering more generous discounts, um, that those council houses that were sold would be replaced. Um, and I think that is a policy that I agree with, because ultimately you, you, you deal with two issues. A, you encourage home ownership, but you're also not depleting the social housing stock. So, um, except, so I, think, I think they're not being replaced. <laughs> Well, I, you, you, that, that they're not being... The, I think, we, again, you have to be careful about what the policy is. Um, the policy technically is to replace the extra houses that are being sold, so the extra houses that are being sold as a result of the policy. Uh, the other factor, of course, is that it takes a long time to build the houses. So councils, I think, have up to five years, or it might be three years, to build, so from the point of selling the council house, they have three years, it might be five, I can't remember, I'm sorry, between three and five years to build the replacement house. So mm. there is a bit of a lads effect going so on So far only well. one in five have been replaced. Uh, I think it's more than that. I think it's about half. Think it's let, about me, half. let me ask you actually to address something that Tom threw out earlier. Tom mm. said um, something that I, I guess a lot of people might instinctively <laughs> agree with, which is we shouldn't treat houses as assets to speculate upon What's wrong with that sentiment? I don't think there's anything wrong with that set of sentiment at all, and, and to a degree I actually sympathise it. But, again, let, let's think about this for a moment. Why, why do we have uh, such speculation in the housing market? Why do we have such speculation there where we have... We don't have speculation, for example, in buying cars or buying computers. And, of course, the reason that we have speculation in the housing market... It's because it's become a one-way bet. Um, this is despite your point about risk and yeah. property builders need 20% because it's... Ah, 
Oh, hang on. No, I, I'm talking about something in ter- terms of the one-way bet. I'm talking about the the, the the eventual owner. Yeah. So, of course, if you've got if you've got a situation where you're not building enough houses and supply isn't keeping up with demand, then that creates a one-way bet of exactly the the one that you've described. Where back in the 1970s, in uh, was it Hackney, you could build, buy buy a house for two thousand. Ha- Two thousand pounds. I mean, now, I mean, it would be what half a million uh, approaching for a, for a, for a sort of decent sized semi, I suppose. So you know, it, it it has just become so so ludicrous that the fact that we're not building enough houses has led to a speculator's market. Um, I'm going to also give a slightly geeky economist go on, go on, answer. Go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the other reason is that housing, of course, isn't just something that you consume. In an economic sense, it's also, for most people, their biggest asset. Mm. It's their biggest investment. So housing is somewhat unusual in, in, in the sense that it, it's kind of a hybrid investment and consumption good. And in a way, that kind of makes it unique. But in my belief, the speculation comes at, at source from the fact that we're not building enough. Okay, okay. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, let's uh, end the panel discussion with Shumi Bosch, uh, who's senior lecturer at Central St. Martins. Is it still called Central St. Martins? It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and senior editor at Blueprint, so two seniors in one. Um, Shumi, one thing. One thing uh, strikes me about this kind of new wave of property speculation is also the architecture. You can mm. see it physically when you look at the Shard or mm-hmm. you look at Cheese Grate and you look at all these new things that suddenly sprung up. What's the role of architects in all of this? Um, good question, one that I'm trying to negotiate with my students all the time. Um, shall I do this? You put a history lecture at the end. It's a kind of dangerous move. Go on. <laughs> no. Read my thing. Okay, well... Um, I'll start with a kind of general thing of ownership, and I think we've picked up on a few topics already. The stigmatisation of rent, for example, the preoccupation in this country with ownership of your, you know, man's home, Mrs. Castle, etc. So, I mean, just to go to etymology, because I'm a writer and a historian, which is how come I tend to lecture... But the word mortgage, um, the word mortgage, um, just just to clarify for anyone who didn't realise, is the conjunction of death pledge, no mort gage. It's it's from Mm. the idea of a pledge that you have until you die. So, (laughs) (laughs) nevertheless, the purchase of mortgages. I mean, not even marriage has that connotation. But, um, <laughs> the purchase of mortgages is, for various reasons, a kind of popular compulsion rather than an obligation, and, and very popular in this country, more so than um, Germany or France or other European cousins. It's to do, I think, with a subjective aspiration, and it's abetted by a more kind of pervasive condition of financialization, not only of the home as an asset, but financialization of labor, culture, goodwill, everything um, that you can imagine. Um, and, I mean, the coexistence of private property and state-owned property isn't new either. Um, in her book, Liberty and Property, Ellen Woods writes about how the Romans um, had this um, differentiation between imperium and dominium, which are two different modes of ownership, ownership by the state in the first case and by private individuals in the second case. So that's not new, as Aditya pointed out. But um, I guess... Um, the individual ownership of property is always linked to this um, idea of speculation and financialization of an asset, whether it's an asset that's held for a future, you know, handing down to your children, 
or actively de uh, deployed in some kind of exploitation, some kind of, my new favourite word, usufructuary value. So that's to do with the use, but also the fructus, the, the fruit that you can get from um, deploying that asset. Um, so just to come back to the UK, the contemporary ideology of, of home earning in the UK seems to have risen in the 20th century alongside the right-to-buy policies that were cooked up by the Conservative government. Um, I believe under the guise of a short-term stimulus, because we weren't making very much in the late 70s, and so we thought we'll make some money by selling some of our assets, uh, housing stock that we had, never to return to um, the community that it was intended for. Um, so I think the idea of thinking about a sudden housing crisis that's only emerged in the last couple of years, well, I think it has roots and tendrils that go back a few decades, again, as we've mentioned. So just to have a look at some of those few decades, and I, I have the same stats as you, Chris. Um, Sorry. So I think in... Um, well, Engels wrote the housing question in 1872. In 1918, about 20%, 22%. It's hard to find reliable statistics, but about 20 22% of the UK owned their property, and about 76 were renting in the private rental market. This is 1918, at the end of the First World War. Just before the Second World War, you've got 32% home ownership, and in about 2003, 70%, 71%, as, as Chris pointed out earlier. Um, in 2003, the private rental sector had shrunk to 10.5%. So again, there's something going on here with the aspiration to own your home, partly, as Justin mentioned, because you know the state's receding. We need to have some kind of financial security, and, and bricks and mortar seem to be it. At the same time, there is this stigma accorded to uh, rent and debt and kind of being insecure. So I think precarity, in a, in a, certainly speaking as a young-ish person, the idea of financial precarity is, is one to be really avoided and, and um, it, it does actually keep, keep me up at night. So back to your question, Aditya, what does this all mean for architects and for architectural production? Um, well... Well, architects have a deep interest in the home as a typology. And, you know, I'm involved in educating young, aspiring architects every day, and you know, we talk about the home as um, a sort of primordial unit of existence. You claim you're dwelling on the earth, you build a home. Um, but architects aren't responsible, despite supply-side problems, aren't responsible for causing the present housing crisis. And therefore, I don't think that architects can be responsible for resolving them, at least not, um, not entirely, um, and not majorly. I think I agree with Justin in the sense that, to a large extent, it, um, it depends on political will and um, other kind of policy debates to do with land and so on. I'll try and be super quick. Have I got a minute? No, no, you're yeah. fine. Um, so just very quick history lesson. Um, something to do with architecture and standardisation, which, um, again, isn't a new story. Uh, Standardisation is probably responsible for a lot of the nasty new builds that um, most of us see and most of us don't like. But, but, again, it's not a new story. After the Great Fire of London, the city wasn't rebuilt according to Wren's kind of rational, beautiful plan, um, which can actually be found in Washington, D.C., Instead, it was rebuilt according to the old higgledy-piggledy medieval lines of the city of London that you see now, largely because property disputes and reparations would have been far too difficult to sort out at the time. So one result of rebuilding the city of London that way is um, the masonry, brick and stone facades that you see now instead of timber. That's obvious why that happened after the fire. But much more interesting was um, the... Uh, 
I'm going to use another weird word, the cadastral survey of, of London that was undertaken by Robert Hooke in the space of two weeks. So within the space of two weeks, Robert Hooke surveyed every property boundary within the city of London um, and standardised it by using a single unit of measurement, which was a naval chain. Um, we go into a tiny bit of detail because it is interesting and because Aditya says I'm fine. So, um, ten chains by one chain makes an acre of land, right? Within one chain, you have um, a standard London house sizes, four, um, four facade frontages, so four houses according to one chain. So, according, so um, yeah, one chain allows for four rods. One rod is equal to one kind of roof beam length as far as it could go. So it was all very neat. And within the space of two weeks, Hooks had allowed for a standardisation of measuring land plots, which allows developers to very quickly figure out what they can build, how much money they can make from it, and so on. So standardisation is really not about producing things quickly in factories. It's about being able to do the maths and working out how much money you can get for the thing that you're going to build. So this is in 17th century, and, um, you know... <coughs> You can see the 17th century origins of the London terraced house makes a kind of ruthlessness of capital and housing you know, very explicit, transforming the city into an en- uh, a sort of engine for generating value and profit. Um, and you know, there's an impact that this process has on urban form and the structure of domestic life as well. Um, and I think the same in modern private houses, standardisation plays a strong role in making houses exchangeable and commodifiable, and it also has effect on architectural practice, obviously. <laughs> things like minimum standards and um, pressures from things like minimum standards and developer profit requirements and low fees because uh, much as architects are, are taught to care very much about creating pleasant domestic environments, that's not necessarily reflected in the fees that they get. The quality of architecture isn't necessarily something that's um, yeah, scaled fairly. Um, so I think... At least in, in my life teaching, a lot of the young aspiring architects feel slightly disenfranchised um, and kind of they feel that in their, in their discipline, of course, they're supposed to affect housing quality. But in reality, in terms of policy and how much effect they can have, that doesn't really come to bear at all. Um, now, architecture, arguably by nature, is a solution-seeking entrepreneurial profession. So there might be innovative visionary solutions for example, decoupling the kind of material fabric of home from land, which is an issue in in an island country, Um, so that the nature of what's being commodified might be changed. Uh, Developing models where ownership of equity or use might be, um, again, decoupled from the materiality of of the architecture itself, or adopting deliberately dynamic or metabolic building typologies so that value isn't locked into this kind of cycle of appreciation that... Um, you know, screws the future generations. Um, and increasingly, these propositions are being taken seriously by anybody who'll listen, um, rather than being dismissed as paper architecture, um, as used to happen in the 60s and 70s. But even so, I think, um, however much I see my... I'm going to end on a slightly pessimistic note, I think. However much I see my kind of um, students coming up with innovative solutions, I still see that... Um, in terms of peace of mind, of ownership and financial security, the Georgian brick terrace of yesterday has more appeal than the kind of floating pods um, that are being designed by architects of tomorrow, even for early buyers, even for early never-going-to-be-buyers like me. Um, so perhaps, I guess, 
I would argue that the issue of home ownership as a culturally and socially inflected trend against increasing precarity isn't an issue that architects are equipped to solve. And that's it. <laughs> Okay, one thing, and then we'll throw this open. Uh, Shumi, just one thing to you. In my lifetime, I remember public housing has been associated with giant tower blocks, which were given a terrible name, tower blocks, mm. you don't want to live in them. Um, in the last 10 years, I'm struck by how many... Well, tower blocks seem to be fine as long as they're private housing tower blocks. So you go around centre of London or further out to zones two and three, and you see private tower blocks everywhere, even out in Manor House, giant tower blocks. Now, I can understand the business logic for that, the kind of thing that Chris is talking about on pressure on land and that kind of thing. But how does that suddenly become fashionable? How How does that suddenly become... How do you make that translation where architects want to design things like that and buyers want to buy things like that? How does that process work? Well, I mean, there isn't a straightforward answer. Partly, um, tower blocks and living in flats isn't really a British tradition, so I can understand why historically that wasn't appealing to home buyers, um, particularly family home buyers. It's okay, perhaps, in a city. But I think as we've um, increased our travel and living elsewhere and people can live elsewhere, there's lots of people also coming in from other places, so I think it's become a more acceptable form of living. But I think the real problem with the tower blocks that you're mentioning, the post-war kind of... Um, first of all, those buildings were not built ever to be private assets. They weren't really built to be... Uh, of the, you know, they were built after the war to, to house lots of people very quickly. Mm. They weren't really built to be kind of fungible things. Therefore, if they're not going to be built as fungible things, well, obviously, they're not going to be appealing to people <coughs> wanting to buy fungible assets. Um, but also, the decline of those buildings is, is partly to do with um, the care taken off them and the, uh, the maintenance taken off them. A lot of those developments were designed for very specific communities and they were designed for um, they were designed to be maintained with budgets and caretakers and so on. And um, if you read histories of certain social housing estates in London which later declined, you'll see that their early lives were actually super positive. Mm. I mean, Pruitt-Igo, the housing estate in, in um, St. Louis in, in America, which uh, was demolished and, and that kind of marked the end of modernism according to some but its early life was super successful it was the first um, social housing project where black and white people lived together um, and this story continues and, and the kind of decline with social housing has a lot to do with management and maintenance as much as the architectural quality so. okay okay all right well um, you've heard from the panel uh, and now I think we should open it up to you um, we've got I've double checked. We've got a roving mic. Um, uh, we'll take them in rounds of three. Um, and if we could have questions rather than comments, there's nothing worse than hearing some young man say more a comment than a question, really, and then launch into long spiel. So I'd rather just have <laughs> questions. If I can make that, if I can just make that one request. Okay. Whoever, whoever you like. Owen. Thank you. Oops. Um, if I can aim this question at Chris, but anybody can help with the answer. Um, can you help me with the question as well? You, I think you said 200,000 homes are required nationally to keep up with the pace. Uh, how many are required in London, before I finish my question? 40,000. 40,000. So what if 40,000 homes are built in London next year, and the cheapest one is £2 million? What use is that to anybody in London? Well, the, hold on, hold on. We're doing round three. Um, 
chap behind in the shirt. Hi. Um, I think one thing that's, um, that's lacking from the idea of building settlements outside London uh, is that it doesn't appreciate... It. I think... You know, this is a comment. I've realised this is a comment in every single way. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna Turn it into a question, on. come on. <laughs> I think one of the, the other chap did very well. He had a comment, he just turned it into a question. I think the problem with making settlements outside of London is that it doesn't address what I think are the two main uh, concerns with the current housing crisis. The first being that it appears to be leveraged by people who already have a significant amount of wealth and power in that a lot of people who don't have the wealth to buy and the wealth to invest in these developments are becoming less powerful. They're being moved from where they are. Meanwhile, people who have that initial advantage are getting wealthier from it. And I think that's grating with more than people who are just being forced to move out. The rest of London, anyone who's not directly benefiting from it, it's grating with our sense of fairness. And the other thing is that I think it's always been the case that in a metropolis, you can have different boroughs with different levels of earning. And this seems to be what's being removed from London. I think that's what's so startlingly strange is that there seems to be nowhere left for low-income households. Um, Basically, the argument is, actually, no, it's fair because the land's worth more, the houses are worth more, so get out the city. And that doesn't seem to be what we're used for in a city. And so, um, to my economist friend on the panel, I'd say your answer is your solutions are based at um, solving supply and demand. But I don't know, do you really think you're answering the problem of the crisis today, which I think is both a moral one and one looking at the future of our cities? There we go. You did turn it into a question. (laughs) Um, Lady down the front. What I mean by that is I think it helps to, uh, in the process of tackling the larger problem, I think just by going at it as in we want the government to do something about it, it hasn't been successful in the past, it isn't working. Um, uh, I suppose my question is how do we make it work, because I think in the long run we need to, to do it systematically, it feels a little bit to me um, as if people are fighting like bats in a sack. Uh, it, you know, should this be should this be lived in by the new era residents? Should it be rented by private sector? To be honest, if it was rented in the private sector, the people who'd be renting it would also be kind of victims of the crisis as well because they'd be paying six hundred pounds a week to the, the owner. I mean, what I mean is, it, I think it, it, it's dangerous where it becomes personalised and it's it's tenants versus property guardians versus social housing tenants versus owner occupiers, and actually, it's just we need to find a systematic solution and pressure on the Okay. All right. So, listen, those are three questions. I'll divvy them out to three members of the panel. Um, 
I think since at least two of the questions were addressed to you, Chris, it's only fair to let you start first. Basically, they were, be quick. They, were, they were forms of question about inequality. I mean, mm. housing doesn't just intensify inequality, it also reflects inequality. Mm. Um, and it's all very well you wanting to throw houses left, right and centre, but how do you make them affordable for people, genuinely affordable for people? Well, you, you make houses more affordable by, by having more of them on the market and having a, having a bigger supply of houses. But, do you, but to go to the second questioner, I mean, that's a very, very good question. How do you get people who you'd want to be in the city to actually live in the city? How do you stop it from just becoming enclaves of super-rich people serviced by people who are bust in from Zone 6 and beyond? Well, I, I think, think two things. One, one, you need to ensure that even in the city centres, we are increasing our housing supply, and we can do that. It's not just about land. It's also about densification, for example. Um, but you also, uh, I, I think, you, you also need to sort of create a situation where the, the communities that we're building in London are much more mixed than perhaps we are at the moment. I mean, one of the staggering things for me about London today is that it, it is still, um, although the pockets of affordability are deteriorating, it is still quite checkered in the sense that you have very rich enclaves and very rich boroughs like Kensington and Chelsea, and then you, you know, bang next door, you can have a very run-down social housing estate. Now, that for me is all symptomatic of a, you know, post-war construct of almost social segregation, and we must absolutely move away from that and go to much more towards the model which we have kind of embraced in our new house building, which is much more mixed communities, so building affordable housing, social housing, alongside market housing. Okay. Really important. Okay. Um, Lindsay, since I cut you off in that question about how to turn things into politics... Um, Go, go for it. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that at all. I think it does need to be tackled uh, as a much wider issue. I just think in my experience um, in fighting a much smaller campaign and others, going uh, um, and others that are happening around London, I think it's kind of the, the, the question is, do, uh, you know, we, we are shouting, you know, and nothing's being done about it. So by, in my opinion, by tackling the problem on a, on a smaller scale and embarrassing those that are involved, because there's a lot of people involved in this picture. It's a far bigger picture. Mm we may have half a chance in making other people's thinking about others' responsibility in, 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 the, in the bigger scheme of things. So for me, I'm not saying it's, it's going to resolve it, but it certainly worked in our case, and I think it could probably work in other campaigns, as in West Hendon, where I think those are involved, some of those that are involved are not being shown up for their part in it. And um, I think it's a tactic that could work, and it's one that I know worked in our campaign and one that I would encourage others to do. I agree with tackling the issue at the issue at a much wider and higher level, but it isn't working at the moment and people are trying to do things on a much larger scale and it's making no difference. So maybe grassroots campaigning back to the basics might in the long run make a difference. Um, and Shumi, I heard you muttering angrily when Chris was talking. So what was wrong? What was wrong? Why was everything he said rubbish? I Tell us. Channel the audience's muttering. <laughs> I think the diversity of London's um, income groups and wealth is, is something that's this rapidly eroding. I don't think that in our new builds we're at all fostering this kind of diversity of incomes or, or kind of social groups. I think 
we've got it because we were bombed, and so we had council estates next to things that weren't council estates, and that's that's nice. That's part of what's great about London that we don't have in Paris, for example, where you have a homogenous, beautiful centre, and then everyone poor on the outskirts. And we were kind of bombed, and so we have pockets of everyone everywhere. But increasingly, even the social housing estates or the former social housing estates are not. No? They're occupied by a more homogenous, more middle class, more aspirational group of people. And, and uh, I have to agree with the gentleman in the audience, and I can't see, but, um, but who is finding it hard to actually find the diversity or, or you know, if you simply walk along Kingsland High Street and think, well, when those leases are up, Mm. They're all going to be coffee shops. No, there's not going to be any African fabric trading shops anymore because mm. it's just not going to be possible. So I'm not sure that we're doing enough to foster economic diversity in the city. Okay, okay. Uh, let's take another round of questions. Uh, two down the front, and is there, a, is there, and the late, yeah, th- the three down the front. Thank you. The the title of this evening is New Realities of Ownership. <laughs> New reality. So the reality is, is potentially in the title to do with ownership. What if capitalism created the 50-year mortgage? What does the panel think about access to debt being a solution to the reality of ownership? There's the question. Okay. I think we're already up to a 100-year mortgage in Japan, yeah. if that's right. Um, and I was also just wondering about um, what Chris... Uh, and Lindsay thought about the idea of a land value tax so to try and um, bring down the cost of developing in London by uh, taxing uh, undeveloped land and stop land banking and there was a lady in yeah there we are Um, hi, I have another one for Chris. I think he's maybe going to get the most. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the thing about Garden City. It's just because it's received so much press over the past year or so. Um, and I wonder if you could just correct me if I'm being really dim, but we've already touched upon cities like Liverpool, where we have plenty of housing, which is kind of underused. And it also has the infrastructure, the trains to get us there, the, the roads, the schools, the cultural institutions and everything that makes a city great already and I just don't know why we're not putting more emphasis on um, uh, supporting and encouraging development in those existing cities we have um, and therefore does, does the whole Garden Cities rationale just become uh, sort of rationalising um, Barrett and Lendlease and all of their friends to just sort of cash in on new developments and I just wondered if you could explain if there's another side to it that I'm missing. Okay, okay. Um, Tom, I'm going to start with you. We just heard about 50-year mortgage. You talked about your kids and how they'd never be able to afford to live in Hackney. What if capitalism did come up with an answer? What if it said, actually, you know what, you can buy a place and you can, you can own it and the debt would be for 100 years and it, the debt would just pass through your family. So it would go past the point of death it will go on to the point of your children's death or beyond. Would you be, would you be a happy shopper if that came about? I think we have to radically look at it, definitely. I think, we need, I think the state needs to take control. The state has been pathetic since the Second World War when they did take such an aggressive stance. It wasn't the bombs that built the houses. It was the government that built the houses. A socialist government said they wanted a welfare state. They wanted decent housing for working people. So they built them. That was the attitude then, and ever since then, we've changed that whole attitude of uh, it's all in the, up to the hands of the private developers. 
um, and the government has stepped back and said, oh, we can't build in more houses anymore, which is pathetic. The government needs to stand up and needs to build decent, affordable houses in London. It needs to fill that gap. The private sector isn't filling that gap. So, yeah, I don't mind how long the debt is, but it needs to be built in the first place. The government can borrow money. It can borrow as much as it wants, and it can pay it back. And the money does come back. It's not like you spend it on drugs in the NHS. The money does come back in the form of rent. So you will get that money back. So I don't know. It just seems a crazy... So you're talking about government building houses to rent, not to sell? Yeah. Yeah, or, or, or both. They need to do it, but I think the government needs to be the one who builds it. They need to take the stance and say, right, we're going to be the 250,000 houses, whatever it is. Because as soon as they build the number of houses, the prices will slacken off. It is about sort of supply and demand, as you said, but the government needs to, to fund that to begin with. And yeah, okay, a 100-year mortgage, a 1,000-year mortgage, whatever it is, I don't care how long the mortgage is, but I want my kids to have somewhere to live. If you look at the shelter... Um, their website. How many people are? How many kids have been homeless every day? Does anyone look at the shelter uh, website at all? Is it like ten kids every day are made homeless? Those are the sort of things that really, really upset me. Make me want to fucking burst out in tears. I mean, those things. It's real people haven't got a fucking house to live in. I mean, they're on the street. That's the fucking sad reality of this. The government needs to just get the fuck on with it and build some houses. It's as simple as that. I don't care how they do it. Just get the fuck on with it. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm End of story about this. Chris, I'm, I'm going to put two questions to you, actually. Uh, one is actually just, I want you to respond directly to what Tom just said. Look, the government can borrow at nearly 0%, right? So it can borrow yeah. almost interest-free. Why shouldn't it just get on and provide public housing? Public housing for rent in the first instance. And all the billions it pays on the okay. housing benefit as well. Okay, so which is goes directly from the government straight to rich people. Deal with that. But also I want you to deal with the, um, the question about garden cities. Yeah. Um, now, you're from a think tank which, if I remember rightly, once counselled that the way to deal with a problem of place like Liverpool was to put them all in the train <laughs> and send them down to London. I thought you might mention yeah. that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... To what extent, this goes back to the question that I raised with Justin, to what extent is this simply a reflection that there's too much going on, if you like, in London and not enough going on elsewhere? Mm. So take them in any order you like. Okay. Well, I I think I'll I'll take Tom's first, actually. Um, I think the first thing just to say, I mean, the reason the government can borrow at 0% or near near 0% is because it has exercised strong fiscal discipline. And... As soon as you relax that fiscal discipline, uh, the terms under which you can borrow, and ultimately you're borrowing from private markets, this isn't money you can just make up, Uh, the terms under which you can borrow can deteriorate, and they can deteriorate very, very quickly, as certainly Greece and Portugal and Spain found to their cost during uh, the Euro crisis. And of course, as soon as people talk about more public spending in housing, you then get the Me Too's argument. What about, you know, more spending on hospitals and all the, all the nice things that we would like to have? It's, but it's all, unfortunately, motherhood and apple pie because uh, somewhere down the line we have to pay for it. And if we're going to pay for it through borrowing, it's not us who pays for it. But, but the rent's paid for it. It's a difference between rent's paid for it, don't they? It's the same now, as if I get a mortgage, you buy a house, isn't it? If I buy a house, I get a mortgage on a house, if I buy a 
I pay that back through the rent, or whatever it is. I pay that back in instalments to the bank. So yeah. why can't that, that's the same thing happen? You're saying it's not... If I borrow £10 billion, pounds yeah. and I get, that's being paid back through the rents, the, 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 it's not like borrowing it through the NHS, where it's just paying on, on drugs, yeah. it doesn't come back because the people die. Yeah. It's a different but, sort but, of borrowing, but, isn't it? But what, but it's your, a different sort what, of borrowing. What's your limit to how much you would borrow? That, that's the Enough point. to build the houses. That's the point. <laughs> well, you know, there, so there you is a limit. So you get it back, don't you? That's I'm what sorry, all I'm saying. There, there is a limit okay, to yeah. what gov- governments can borrow and, and the terms under which they can borrow. Um, the, the other thing I would just say on that, though, is that fundamentally this is not about money. The lack of houses in this country is not about a lack of money to build them with. It's about a lack of land to build them on. It's a symptom of the planning system. It's a symptom of the supply side. It's not because the government isn't investing money in housing. Um, So on the uh, Garden City point, um, I I agree with you that we do need to... I mean... Even the Conservatives agree that we need to rebalance the economy. Um, and, you know, George Osborne and other senior Conservative MPs have been talking, haven't they, about, you know, rebuilding this northern hub. So I think, I think there is a general recognition, uh, even on the right, that there does need to be a rebalancing of the economy. That's not just in, in terms of, you know, rebalancing it towards certain sectors, mm. but in a geographical sense as well. Well, it could be token gestures, I mean, but, at the end of, but at the end of the day, um, if, if the Conservatives are going to ever win a majority, then they're going to have to get more votes up north, aren't they? Um, so you can take the cynical view of that, mm. um, and that's absolutely fine, but that's how democracy works. You have to re- respond to what people want. Um, but on your point about Liverpool... Um, the answer cannot just be about building houses and, and housing supply. There, there has to be a much more holistic approach about ensuring that live, places like Liverpool are prosperous economically uh, and you know, they, they have that sort of cultural and social fabric, which certainly Liverpool, in a cultural sense, has in bounds. So I would just say to that that if... if you know, you've got a place like Liverpool and only half a million people want to live there. You cannot make a million people want to live there. This is all, at the end of the day, it's market-driven. and It's driven by things like what jobs are there, what jobs are, are there to employ people who live there. So this is what I mean by you can't just think about housing in isolation. You have to take the holistic view. Um, but garden cities, although they're part of the answer, they're not the whole answer. I just tag that on as well. Um, and I'm sorry, I asked Lindsay if she was interested in land value tax, and she refused. But <laughs> yeah. I'll ask Chris. I think you're right, Justin, sorry. Uh, yeah. Okay. Like I said, I'm not an economist. I can't. I, I'm not sure I can take that on. I think maybe I do too. You can take it on. But I can make a comment. Um, I agreed with one thing that Chris said earlier, which is that, you know, we need to, that there's only one way of solving the housing crisis, and that's to build more homes. Um, however, I do, I disagree. You, you know, you made the point that I forget what the year was. Was it 47 or was it before the war? I can't remember when private house builders were living up to the demand. Uh, to, to, and um, my argument against that is simply the last 30 years. I mean, that figure of 220,000 homes a year has been the statistic as long as I've been 
writing about architecture and cities, which is at least 15 years. And we've been falling, we, we've, you know, we've been falling well short of that all that time. And one of the reasons why is that it's simply not in house builders' interests to build more housing because of you know, rising values and, and sitting on the land and waiting for the value to go up. And, and, and if the logic is that we have to build more houses to bring the price, you know, to, to kind of stabilize the uh, house price, then, of course, it's not in the private sector's interest to stabilize the house price. So it's not in their interest to build more houses. Do you see what I mean? So there's a yeah. fundamental um, flaw in the logic of, of, of leaving it to the private, uh, to the private sector. Um, I agree with Tom that I think, um, I, I, personally, I think it's going to take a massive act of political will to solve the, the housing crisis. I do believe government should take on a little bit more debt, a, a, a manageable amount of debt to start building uh, more uh, socially rented homes. And it's interesting how little the housing crisis has been a topic of debate in the election so far. Mm. I was actually disappointed to see Labour's offering on this, that they're talking about, you know, garden cities again. I think this is, um, you know, I think, Chris, again, I think your point about building in the green belt and building garden cities, you know, on, on this extra 1% of land is actually, I mean, yeah, it's a valid point. It's only 1% more land, but it's not necessary. We've got tons of brownfield land that's not being built on, and we've got the existing garden cities and new towns, not enough. which are there with existing infrastructure and train lines and so on, and that can all be expanded upon. Um, and the, the reason why I think that, you know, governments can, or, or parties can get away with this really, like, I don't know, in my opinion, disappointing uh, policy work is because governments are not elected based on housing policy. I mean, in... In no election in recent times has it actually been. Uh, they're, they're just not. They're not elected on that policy. It tends to be, you know, the NHS and taxation and other things. And so, maybe they haven't got their best brains working on it. I think if it was going to be an election, it should be this one, no? That's fought on the housing question. But I wanted to ask. I don't know if this is going to work. I wanted to ask the audience. <laughs> about, I mean, I'm just kind of curious about this, this issue of new models of ownership. And um, much as I want my personal... This is the age of the self, right? So much as I want my personal financial security later in my life, I also value my labour mobility, as Chris mentioned earlier, and, um, and just a kind of sense of liberty. I don't necessarily want to be indentured... Uh, for the period of my life that I want to enjoy by massive amounts of crippling debt. So, yet in this country, as far as I know, we don't have um, sufficient models for collective ownership or for collective responsibility. Um, and I guess I was just curious to know how many people would go in for something like collective ownership or collaborative living. Okay. Raise your hand. Okay, so we're not all homers or castle thing people. Okay, I think, I think that's maybe half or slightly less then. And still we haven't got any legal um, infrastructure for architects who are wanting to take on uh, groups of clients. That's very difficult for well, architects to do. Well, we've got community land trusts. Yeah. But community land trusts. They're, they're not, you know, are there any in London? Yeah. There are. A couple. Okay. Yeah, a out couple. in East London, right? Yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. That's right. But I do, I, I would come back to this point that it's not only an economic and political issue, but a social and cultural mm. issue that we need to address as well in terms of models of ownership and what we're prepared to accept in the long term. OK. Um, Chris, I just think, since we should be responsive to our audience, don't <laughs> deal with Justin. Deal with the question about land value tax. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, actually, there, there is a, 
um, a link there because obviously, you know, Justin was just talking about builders um, acting as land speculators. Um, now, I think the, the, the sort of the, uh, the evidence or the empirical evidence on, on land banking and land hoarding by developers is actually um, quite mixed. Um, and so I'm, I'm certainly not of the view that, um, you know, that is the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the core problem of, of the housing crisis. Um, I think fundamentally... Um, the reason that builders are only going to, and it's true, builders will only ever build about 150,000 a year, which, you know, isn't enough because it's not, you're right, it's not in their interest to build more. But, again, we should ask ourselves, well, why isn't it in their interest to build more than 150,000? And again, and again, it's ultimately, it's because they're incentivized to le release land slowly. And they're incentivized to release land slowly because they're only getting land slowly out of the planning system. So if they can only get a certain amount of land coming forward, then it's absolutely in their interest not to build in volume, but to build on margin. And that, of course, is exactly the situation that we face. Now, if you stop the rationing of land by the planning system, you would very soon turn that situation on its head. Um, now, in terms of the sort of land value tax, I think, um, again, if you're not going to do something more fundamental, then you might, might be able to make a, some difference to housing supply by having some kind of, you know, use it or lose it. Uh, mechanism, which is kind of what the mayor is trying in London, whereby if the developer doesn't, doesn't start to build out on the site within a three-year period of it getting planning permission, then they lose that planning permission. So I think that could be quite a good mechanism to get build-out rates happening much more quickly. Okay. Uh, look, we were meant to finish by now, but we started a bit late. So should we do one last round of questions? <coughs> Um, and all the panellists will have to make a response to them. So be warned, panellists. Um, okay, gentlemen in the glasses, gentlemen down the front, and lady near the pillar? Yeah. Do the gentleman down the front, please. please. Thanks. Um, so this is a question for Justin. Um, so uh, on your book, Radical Cities, you did a very interesting analysis about models in, in Latin America. Uh, you know, models about ownership, cooperatives, slum upgrading, you know, Medellin, the communas and everything. Uh, I wonder if you can, you, you know, you, you will take one of some of these models to London, or what would be the hunger to replicate some of those models? What, you know? How can we learn from those examples? Mm. Um, there's really quite a lot of really good expertise as far as co-ownership is concerned on the continent, but never seems to have replicated itself over here. Um, first of all, is, it, is that just a cultural thing? And we've just never got quite used to the idea of that sort of all wanting to be together. And also there's some really good models out there which um, say that you, you will pay, I think it's 25% of your income is what you will pay into the, um, into the COP. So even if you actually earn more, you pay 25% of your income, and that's reassessed every year. Why wouldn't that work as a model rather than just saying it's always going to be a flat rate and you have to pay a huge amount? Why can't we have people paying different amounts? 
for the same property. Okay. Uh, and where was my third question? Of the glasses. <coughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, I take uh, Justin's point about developing the green belt, um, and I suppose I would ask Charles. Uh, sorry, Chris. Um, where does that end? Um, with population increase showing no signs of abating, how far do we go? When does 1% become 10%? Um, and I suppose this is probably quite a controversial uh, idea, but I live in a, a new-built estate in Hoxton, um, and I rent from someone who's fortunate enough to have bought a flat in that development. And from my bedroom window, I can see approximately four or five empty properties. Um, and I wonder whether there's a system or a way which we can, without generating uh, invasion or from the state, how do we address that problem? I think it would be interesting to find out how many empty properties are in London and across the country and who's sitting on those and why are they sitting on them. Why is no one living in them? Okay. Um, so, so, let me start with Tom. Listen, you've just had a model kind of talked about on and off between both panel and audience about co-ownership. So you had one idea thrown at you of a really long-term mortgage, another one about co-ownership and kind of different ways of owning, different ways of owning a property. What do you think of that? I mean, is it part... You started off by saying, you know, I rejected the idea of own ownership when I first arrived in Hackney. Yeah. Is it time just to rethink the way that we think about ownership entirely and actually not think about buying stuff for ourselves, yeah. but buying in a kind of uh, unit with other people? Yeah, I mean, I, I did um, end up being in, uh, in squatted accommodation for about 15 years. So going to your question first, I mean, there's a very simple... Well, it used to be a very simple way. When something was left empty, you squatted it. Um, <laughs> Which I think was a, it was a great way. You know, someone didn't want their house, left it empty. Why not squat it? I mean, it's just this. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy. This government have criminalised people that are homeless and made it easier for empty properties to remain empty. So that's, yeah, ridiculous. Um, and then from that housing, uh, from that being in that squatted community, we actually formed a housing cooperative. So we turned into about 30-odd houses into a housing cooperative. Um, and I lived there for, I think, about seven or eight years in that housing cooperative in Hackney, which, which did work. It, it has its problems, but it was good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I eventually moved out because I, I, I actually bought a property. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm very open to that. It, it was a great way of living. We had our friends around. We had a community, we had a strong community who all looked out for each other, which is what you were staying on your estate. So it became very strong and a very vibrant place to live. And I just live around the corner to that now, and all the kids are hanging out together, and it, it's, it's a great way of sharing things. So... I'm all up for housing cooperatives and different forms of taking ownership of property rather than just the individual owning one. Um, the trouble is with London is, uh, someone said affordable rents, but that's 80% of the market value, which was what we talked about earlier. I couldn't actually afford to live in the housing cooperative anymore. We were actually taken over by another housing association and the rents went up and up and up and they're still going up now. And they're, again, they're fighting the housing association to try and keep the rents down. So when we're in this situation, 
where there's such a demand for housing, we're also desperate for housing. Everyone becomes desperate, and everyone's desperately trying to buy their places. So, like you said, we need a bigger political picture, and we need the government to step in. We need the government to take plots of land, brownfield sites, industrial areas. Hackney has got um, a smaller population now than it had in the 1930s. So when they're talking about the population of London's got bigger, it's the outer boroughs that have got bigger, not the inner city boroughs. So Hackney's still got lots more room for lots more houses to go up. And people are happy. Again, I worked in um, the Holly Street Council Estate, which was demonised, starved of money by, the, by Margaret Thatcher's government. It went into terminal decay. It got taken over to revamp the estate. Um, they wanted to build up the four tower blocks on that estate, the older residents on the estate said, well, actually, we want the tower block kept. So they fought for it. They kept the, the tower block in the estate, one of the tower blocks. It's got a concierge on the door now, and they love it in the tower block. So there are ways of changing our attitudes to it, and I think we've got to look at different attitudes. But it has to be led by the government. We have to have a policy, like you said, of being forthright, taking property, buying property, <coughs> leading the way, and then loaning the money to groups of individuals, all these other alternative ways of doing it. But the government's got to be there, I think. Um, Justin, you had a question addressed directly to you. I, I want to broaden it out just a little bit. To what extent does what you see in places like Latin America, slums, very rich people around the centre, uh, kind of encl enclaved rich, to what extent does what we see in Latin America or in other developing world cities now resemble the kind of city we live in in Britain, in London? Well, I mean, we're still a long way from that. Um, you know, the question about radical cities is, is an excellent one, but it's one that I always slightly dread because it's that we're talking about quite different situations. And the, the barrier to entry is simply higher in London because if you take a, a, a barrio community or a slum community, there's so much that one can do in those communities that is not necessarily going to, you know, that in fact government can afford to do. Whereas in London the price gets so high so quickly that, you know, it becomes a kind of slightly academic question. So um, what I would say is that the similarities are that London is polarising fast, um, that the, the drama of the Latin American city is just the extreme social segregation where you have these kind of physical, psychological, social barriers between, a, you know, a middle-class community ending and suddenly a slum beginning and if there are any lessons to be taken out of that it's not so much necessarily about housing itself but about tactics that have been used to try and break down those barriers to try and um, you know improve um, communication across those lines to try and um, seed growth and, and civic infrastructure in those poorer communities bring transport links to those communities so that you're really evening out uh, the city and breaking down those those social barriers. I mean, it, it all sounds very vague, uh, but it, it's you know it's been working uh, wonders in certain cities, cities like Medellin, where you know you take a, a, a barrio that's been disconnected from the city for 30 years, you put a cable car up there, you start building libraries and schools. It makes a very big difference quite quickly. Um, in London, we're not talking about the same level of privation, so it, it's difficult. But I mean, you know, we are seeing an, a kind of exodus of um, kind of working class people from the city centres to, to the periphery and, and beyond. You know, Boris Johnson talked about the social cleansing of London at some point, said it's not going to happen on my watch. Well, it's happening on his watch. 
you know, uh, they're sending people up at, to other cities now, like boroughs like Newham, have run out of affordable housing. And they're so this is, you know, we're talking about expulsions now from the city. Mm. So it's getting pretty extreme, actually. Mm. Um, Shumi, I want to put the Hoxton question together with the lady who said that we shouldn't personalise this too much. There's often when people talk about housing, they'll talk about the need for social housing and they'll talk about how my kid can't get on the housing ladder. Um, do you think there's a risk... And you talked a bit about precarity in your opening remarks. Do you think there's a risk that actually what you end up with is people in private rental housing feeling hard done by because they don't afford the kind of rents that are enjoyed by those in social rental housing and there's a kind of setting against each other going on, especially within London, where demand for housing is so high, especially in... Central. Yeah. What do you think the chance... What do you think the the risks of that politically. If you want to create this kind of political housing movement for more houses, better quality houses for you know, more people on different incomes, how is that going to happen if people are being set against each other? Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it, to mediate these things of, well, you deserve something and you don't. No, I mean, that those lines are always going to be difficult to draw, and I think, I mean, there isn't going to be an easy answer to that aside of more transparent policies, more discussion, more participation involved in the allocation of, you know, these sorts of things. I mean, I, I wouldn't know what political moves might solve those problems. They're inevitably tensions. But I think if we're able to understand how those decisions are made and if there's more transparency, then we can only hope that there'd be more understanding to say, OK, well, there are reasons why social tenancies, affordable tenancies are being granted to these people and not these people. And perhaps, you know more clear steps for mobility so that it's not a silo, you know, so that you're not in some sort of ghetto uh, once, you're, once you're given this sort of label, but you might have ways and means to perhaps enter a more market-orientated private rent if you, if you choose to, if you can, in your life. But, yeah, I think um, a very rough answer, more transparency, more dialogue, more participation about these things rather than them just being kind of barely waved around during election time. <laughs> it's, it's kind of pathetic. Just to kind of um, come back to the gentleman in the front's question, I just was thinking of another model, uh, not exactly where I come from, but in India anyway, um, where the private enclaves are actually the ones leaving the city. I'm thinking specifically of the city of Mumbai or Bombay. Um, so between Bombay and Pune, there's a, a private city called Lavasa now that's, that's now developing. And so this isn't a ghettoized city for the poor, but rather a gated city for the rich, where um, you have to pass a certain criteria in order to be able to buy a property there. You know, anybody can't buy a property there. What's happened in, in Bombay is, I think, I think it's pretty clear, it's pretty evident in the most materially evident way that you could possibly imagine that it is the poor that are the engine of that city. And so... You know, you can't displace them. Yeah, there are uh, extensions to Mumbai where most of the domestic servants perhaps live and come in under the fantastic transport system that thankfully exists in Mumbai. But, um, but at the same time, as Justin describes, there are those sort of um, seven-star towers and then the adjoining slum that serves the seven-star tower, mm. and that's just a reality. And if you're rich enough to say, well, I don't actually like to see that anymore, you might go and get a place in Lavasa. So it's, it's something to do with the failure of the city and there not being any kind of political management of space in the city, so that it's actually the rich who are decamping rather than the poor being pushed out. It's just a, another model for you. 
Um, Chris, finally, to any of you, um, I'm not going to address any particular question to you. You've had so many different attacks from all sides. I feel you should have one minute to respond to any particular attack that you feel <laughs> particularly strongly. Well, actually, I, I'm going to pick up, because there, there was a, a, a really good question earlier, which was, you know, in essence, and I do see the, the housing supply problem in this country or the lack of housing supply as fundamentally uh, a political problem. And someone asked, well, how can we make housing much more of a political issue? And I think, um, you know, the debate is increasingly being one of a polarisation between younger people and older people. And I just think if only younger people would be more emotive about housing and if only they would get out and vote, um, then it might actually change things. Because at the moment... The political arithmetic are stacked in favour of not building more houses, i.e. keeping the NIMBYs happy, older people happy. So if you want to do something about it, get out and vote. That, that, that would be my final word on that. OK, um, listen, I'm going to hand back to Owen for a uh, kind of final bit of housekeeping. But um, thanks to all of you for saying... I think we only had one comment masquerading as a question, which is a record. Uh, thanks to Tom, Lindsay, Chris, Justin and Shumi. Thank you.